Galatians 2, we've, uh, we've been in these verses for a, a few weeks. Lord willing, this is the end of uh, the study for these verses, and we'll move on next week. But Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, here's what the Lord says through Paul. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when Peter and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Father, we come to your word, and Lord, we are eager, Father, to hear from you and to learn from you, and God, to do what you've called us to do because of the work of your Spirit within us as we learn and grow in your word. Father, that includes the good that you have for us in in reaching out to those who are poor. Father, Lord, we pray that this time would honor you and it would glorify you and it would edify the brothers and sisters here. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, as we read the verses together, you may have picked out some, uh, I'll call it choppiness. And I, I tried to read it a little bit more in that way, that choppy, interrupted sentence way. It might have been a little bit hard to follow, but it was intentional. It was intentionally translated that way in the ESV and in the New American Standard, the New King James, um, because it was trying to capture not just what Paul was saying, but how he was saying it. He, he's, he's upset about what's happening in Galatia. And so you look at verse 2 and it says the phrase there, though privately before those who seemed influential, it, it appears in parentheses in the ESV. Um, it's, it's information that needs some more information, but it's not immediately followed up on until later on when he quits inter- interrupting himself <laughs> and, he, and he gets on with what he started to say. Um, this is called, if you want to know the fancy word for it, an anacoluthon. There you go, you've learned a new word for today, anacoluthon. It's where you just interrupt yourself. You're talking, you have a thought that comes in, I gotta say this, and then you get back to what you were talking about before. He's talking about going up to Jerusalem to talk to those who seemed influential. He's talking about the meeting they had, but he jumps to the end of the meeting before he even talks about what happened in it. The ultimate result was that Titus was not forced to be circumcised. But as he's talking about that, it spurs his mind about the false brothers who came in with their, mess- their mission, their message, We talked about that last week. And so he assured the Galatians that at no time did they yield for even a moment. So then after all of that, he gets back to what he started with at the beginning. 
In verse 6, he says, okay, now, from those who seemed influential, he, he, he talks about these men who seemed influential, and he interrupts himself again. He says, what they actually were makes no difference. God shows no partiality. You see it again in parentheses in the ESV. Uh, the NIV, the New King James, set it apart with dashes. Um, but he starts talking about himself and Peter in verse 7 and their parallel ministries. And then verse 8, again, more parentheses. Um, so you can see that this is a letter where he is just, just pouring out onto page what he's thinking about. As he's thinking, it's a, it's a stream of consciousness where he's thinking and he's writing and he thinks of something else and writes that and then he gets back to what he was talking about before. And we, rec- we, we recognize this for those of us who started writing papers before the computer. This is what we would call the rough draft, right? <laughs> this, is, this was the first draft or rough draft. There's, there wasn't a rewrite there was just, I need to get this down, I need to get this out, because it's so important and it's so urgent. Now, brothers and sisters, by this point, we can answer this question, but what would be so important and so urgent that he had to get this letter out right away? The gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and whether they were going to replace it, reject it, or accept it. So the question for you this morning is, how important is the gospel to you? How relevant in your life is it outside of saving you from hell? Which, as we have proclaimed this morning in the Lord's Supper, is important. That is important. It's eternally significant. But the gospel is not just significant and important and urgent because it saves us from the penalty of sin in hell. We talk about this a lot, but we want to keep reminding ourselves of this. It's not only important that one day we will be delivered from even the presence of sin in heaven. But it's important because it delivers us from the power of sin here, here and now. Remember, that's what Paul said at the beginning of this gospel. He said this is to deliver us from the present evil age. That's his central focus. That aspect of our salvation is what's most and foremost in his mind in this argument. This gospel glorifies God because of its dramatic effect on sinful human beings. He takes me, a sinner, worthy of his punishment, his wrath, and turns me into one of his children to glorify him. And it was all his work from beginning to end in accomplishing, electing, illuminating, sending. It stood the test of time, as we saw last week, and serious challenges. So the gospel is not only for the future, but also for now. And he changes us now in preparation for the glory of God, which will be when he glorifies us. So Paul's got a lot of really good, important, excellent points here, a lot of good things to say. They're just, they're just maybe a little bit hard to follow as he interrupts himself, but that's what we want to work through this morning. So what have we seen so far in verses 1 through 10? Well, we're looking at the three parts to this particular reason why you should believe that this gospel came from God, why it's the only true one. We saw that first in verses 1 to 3, we need to believe in the divine gospel rather than any false gospel because of the confirmation of faithfulness to it. The picture we saw included a lot of different kinds of people over many different years holding fast to this gospel because most false gospels fade away over time. Most of them, not all of them. Most of them do. And this gospel has stood the test of time and, and, and coming, people coming against it that we'll look at next. But realistically, this is one of the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus, isn't it? If these guys had made up the resurrection of Jesus, if they'd made up this story about him rising from the dead, they wouldn't have stood the test of time. It would have just faded over time and said that was, it was false. It was garbage. Just forget it. 
But these men remain faithful to it, and it has, it has stood the test of time for over 2,000 years now, uh, coming to us in the same pure way. So Barnabas and Titus and Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem, all of them were faithful to this message. Secondly, we saw that we need to believe that this is the true divine gospel, and instead of any other, in the place of any other false gospel, because of the victory over the challenge from false brothers against it. This was a serious challenge. Remember, it was a serious and it was a strategic challenge. The goal was to bring us into slavery, the slavery of mankind's rules and and laws, man-pleasing, you know, please yourself with feeling better about yourself because you're such a good person. Please, please other people by obeying their rules that they've made up, and, and let's, let's just please man instead of God. Let's obey these rules and fall into slavery under the rules of mankind instead of God. That's what this will accomplish, this, this mission from these false brothers. But it was also strategic. Remember, they, they do that by, by coming in and impersonating brothers and sisters. They, they come in as pseudo-false brothers. They, they are fake, but they seem real. They infiltrate us in our fellowship. They, they try to act and talk and dress just like what they think Christians are supposed to act like and dress like and talk like so that they can get to know us in our areas of freedom so that they can do the third step, impose a law on us. That was their strategic plan, and it still is. It happens today. So the third reason that brings us to number three in verses six through 10, that we should believe, we need to believe that this is the only divine gospel instead of any other false gospel based on the certification of fellowship in it. The the certification that this is real, part of that is the fellowship that comes around from this. Now, we need to consider something before we dive in to this point. Because we talk about how the gospel changes us. It changes people. But we need to know that the gospel doesn't just change us into better versions of ourselves, right? It doesn't just make us um, nicer, kinder, gentler, meeker, all, the, all of those comparative adjectives, comparative ways of describing. Canyon kids, you're in here, and, and in school you learn about comparisons, right? And there's a comparative, and then there's a superlative. There's the compare. Somebody can jump, Somebody in a comparative way can jump higher. In a superlative sense, somebody jumps highest, right? That's what the gospel does. That's the change that the gospel brings in us. It's not just better. It's impossibly high. It's impossibly good because the gospel changes us to become like Jesus. It makes us into what we could never be ourselves. That's the kind of change that happens to every person who believes in the true gospel. But even further, and this may cause you to say, wait a minute, <laughs> he, better, he better explain this, the kind of change in all believers is the same. Say, so, wait a minute. Are we all, does, it, does that mean we're supposed to be robots? I mean, we're all just supposed to try to start dressing to get the, alike and, and, and speaking alike and, and acting alike, and no one has any differences anymore? That, no, that's not biblical, praise the Lord because I don't think I could be as good as some of you, and some of you don't think you could be as bad as me <laughs> in certain areas, in certain ways. We can't be all just like one another. Um, God made us different members of the body of Christ. Some of us are hands or eyes or feet or different parts of the body. He's made us differently. We're not copies of one another, but the kind of change that the gospel brings about in all believers is the same. Here's how. The kind of change is internal. It's immediate it's increasing, and it's imitating Jesus. 
internally. This, this change that God brings about in us in the gospel is internal. 2 Corinthians 4 says, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown where? In our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The change that God brings about in us is internal. When we come to the Lord Jesus, unfortunately, he didn't make us better looking. <laughs> he doesn't change our outward side yet. One day the Lord will bring us home and he'll fix all of our infirmities and we will have a glorified body. But for right now, the change that God brings about in us in the gospel is internal. It's immediate. Second Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he might one day become a new creation. Is that what he says in 2 Corinthians 5? No, he says he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's immediate and, and it's right now and it can never be changed. It's permanent. That's how we stand before God positionally. We are immediately changed. But it's also increasing. It's, it's also, incre even though it's immediate and it's, and it's permanent and it never changes, it's also increasing because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image, the same image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So positionally before God, we are immediately, we stand in Jesus' righteousness. We stand holy before Him as Jesus is. But practically right now, that image is being worked out. We're being transformed into His image, practically here on earth. Step by step, increasing before God practically. Finally, it's an imitation of Jesus. It's imitating Jesus, this change of the gospel within us. It's not just so that we're better again. It's not just so that we're nicer or so that we kind of get, uh, improve ourselves like it's some kind of self-improvement. No, this is the same image of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 3 says, the same verse, the same image of Jesus. So we are being imitators of Jesus from one to glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The image of Jesus is perfection, it's righteousness, it's holiness, it's love. The image of Jesus transcends any and all differences we have. I mentioned last week how even a Denver Broncos fan and an Oakland Raiders fan can come together and have fellowship in the gospel, and it actually happened. After the service, I was cornered, I mean, approached by <laughs> Raiders fans, no, uh, any difference. I mean, it doesn't matter how deep it goes. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how surface level it is. It's, there is nothing earthly or fleshly that separates believers. Not the color of our skin, not our ethnicity, not our gender, not our job, our career, how much money we do or don't have, not our personality, not our past. Nothing separates us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing separates us or should separate us from one another. That is the truth of what happens to us, the result of the gospel in us, and it's seen in verses 6 through 10. And in these verses, we see five shared commonalities, five things that were in common between Paul and the apostles. And all of the sameness points us back to what we've been talking about, the immediate and internal change that God produces in us by the gospel. It unites us together. It brings us together and it proves that it can only be the work of God in His gospel in our life to do this. Let's look at them. A, verse 6, the same gospel. It's the same gospel. He said, those who seem to be influential, doesn't matter what they really were, added nothing to me. We'll get back to the first part in a second, but look at that 
added nothing to me. As we discussed the gospel, nothing was removed, nothing was added, it remained the same. Again, everybody who knew Paul knew the gospel, knew what he proclaimed. He was consistent, he was insistent on it everywhere he went. And he and the apostles have just confirmed and verified that that one that he preaches is the same one that we have, the same one that we believe, the same one that came from God. So they added nothing. The gospel was intact. The same one he'd been preaching all along by God's grace through faith in the Jesus of the scriptures for the glory of God, that's all there is in the gospel. None of our works, none of the things that we do or don't do or say or don't say, nothing can be removed, nothing can be added. Who is they? He says, Paul and those who seemed influential. Now, what does that mean? We touched on it back in verse two. It just means those who appear influential, those who everybody believes are the influential ones, the famous ones, really, the, the, the celebrities, <laughs> the famous ones. When they speak, everybody else goes quiet to listen because they're influential. They, what they say is important. And the reason for that is because these original capital A apostles that were in Jerusalem had been with Jesus, like physically, personally, while he was on this earth. For three and a half years, they, they, they touched him, they heard him, they smelled him, they saw him. <laughs> they knew him physically. He had taught them personally. They, they were the ones that, that he gave the Great Commission directly to. They had done miracles. They, they had taught in Jesus' name. It was very impressive credentials. People had a very high impression of these men. But they were only men. They were just mere men. They were only the people that God used, the, the men that Jesus selected for his work. And, and so many of the people in the church would look up to these apostles in a little bit of a higher position probably than they should have, a little bit of an exalted way maybe than they should have. Certainly the Judaizers did. So when Paul says those who seemed influential, he's talking about them, um, James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, as he says later. He's not degrading them. He's not bringing them down to a level that's lower than they should be. He's not attacking them. He's attacking the pedestal that people have put them on. Like, you know, th these men that appear so influential that you've, that you've put up on this pillar, he's attacking that pedestal. That's why he says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Whatever they were, physically touching, hearing from, seeing Jesus, the miracles they did, it, it doesn't make any difference None of that matters. What matters is the gospel. God, God shows no partiality for those people who can do things or not do things or say things. You remember in Matthew 7 when Jesus said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to come into the kingdom of heaven. He says there are going to be many who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Look at the things that we did. Didn't that earn us salvation? Isn't that impressive? <laughs> Don't you look at these credentials? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not what you do. It's not what you are in the gospel. It's not what you can do or what you know. It's all Jesus Christ in the gospel. It's all about Jesus. God shows no partiality. He says, those guys you placed on the, such a pedestal, those guys that you look up to so much, those guys added nothing to me. Got the same gospel. The same gospel that came from God, from Jesus himself. They taught it, I taught it, I teach it. It's still here. It's not the human being that matters. It's the God of this gospel that matters. So there's no division between Paul and the apostles. The gospel's the same. B, 
verse 7, we see it's the same goal. The same goal these all guys had. You know, on the contrary, he says, you might expect, you get a whole bunch of guys together in a room, they can't agree about everything, right? They're going to disagree about something. There's, there's got to be something they can say, right? I mean, you're too strong over here. You're, you're, there's not enough of this here. You know, you're, you're too much on sin and not enough on grace, or you got so much grace, but there's no sin. Some kind of imbalance, some kind of imperfection. No, the, the gospel's perfect. There's nothing that could be added to it. They, they didn't add or subtract anything to him or from him. They saw that he had the same gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the circumcised. They had the same goal of getting that same gospel, out to people in the world. They'd be reaching different people, different cultures, different backgrounds. But despite any of those differences, since the gospel was the same, the goal was the same. Reach out to people out in the world with the gospel. That's why Jesus said, go out into all nations in Matthew 28. So there's no division here. The the gospel was the same. Their goal was the same. See, verse 8, same God. It's the same God working in all of this. He, he who worked through Peter, Paul says. Again, this is, he's pointing to the truth of the source for where all of this came from, all the continuity, all the sameness that's worked out. The reason that this is effective is because it's the same God. It was God who showed Peter the vision. Remember in Acts chapter 10, the vision of the sheet with all the animals. He says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, oh, I could never do that. I've only eaten clean things. And God did it three times, so he finally got it through. He he understood, you're going to go to Cornelius' house, a Gentile. (gasps) He says, truly, Acts 10, Peter says, truly I understand that God, here it is again, shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, good news is the word gospel, he is Lord of all, he preached the gospel to them. He gave them the gospel. And as he did, God, the Holy Spirit, fell on all who heard the word, and they believed. So Peter said, that just happened the same way it happened for us. The same God worked among the Gentiles, the same way he worked among the Jewish people. There was no longer a division between Jew and Gentile. That came upon them because of the same God working in the same gospel as they had the same goal. Brothers and sisters, how could there be any division between people like this? (laughs) We still find ways. We still find ways to do it, but this is the change of the gospel that makes us all the same in the same ways. It points us to the same gospel, the same God, the same goal. It transcends any and all differences. D, the same grace, verse 9. Same grace. When those guys, again, the ones on pillars, the ones on pedestals, James, who was Jesus' half-brother, Cephas, his Name, other name is, is Peter. The, the Greek name is, is Peter. John, who's the son of Zebedee, the brother of the James the disciple who had been martyred uh, before in Acts 12. He says, when those guys heard everything that was there to hear, they got it. They perceived the truth. What truth? That Paul had received grace for his life, his ministry, the gospel, that he, that he had received grace in that. They all understood that where they, they all came from the same place of needing God's grace. They all needed the grace of the Lord. Now, we need to define grace because we use this word a lot and and we hear other people use this word a lot, even other religions, other traditions and faiths. Grace is, and we've talked about it before, simply the undeserved favor of God. Favor is 
acceptance. It's, it's, it's peace. It's, it's kindness and goodness from God to mankind. But if you don't know the story of the Bible, I need to tell you, or even if you do, you may need to be reminded, that's not possible. <laughs> it's not possible for God to look on us kindly because he is completely holy and perfect and pure, and we are the opposite of that. In ourselves, as we're born, we are sinners. It's not possible. We are permanently stained by sin. How could we ever do anything to get around that or over that or through that? We can't. It's not possible for God, the holy God, to be at peace, to have favor toward sinners like us. It's not, poss- it's not only impossible for sinful people to be viewed that way. It's not right. It can't ha- it's not just. It's not the right thing. Justice demands that sinners be punished. That's our problem. Because we're sinners, we cannot be made right with God. He cannot view us favorably and peacefully with joy and acceptance because all we can do is sin more in our sinfulness. God says when he looks at us and we do all of our righteous things, those are even more filthiness. It's just wrong and it demands, it requires his justice, our punishment. Yet even as God is just, even as he is perfect and pure and holy, he is also the God of grace, undeserved favor. What's not deserved so that we can, des- we can not deserve but be given forgiveness of our sins, we can be reconciled to him so that the impossible can happen. The impossible that we can be made right with God, that he can, be, that he can see us and view us with favor, with peace, with kindness. Now, justice is still met. The punishment of our sins was paid by Jesus We're brought into God's presence by his grace in Jesus. That's why we say grace is a person. It's not just an idea. It's not just a concept. It's Jesus who shows us our sin. It's Jesus who pays for our sin. It's Jesus who brings us into the presence of God the Father in his holiness with the holiness and righteousness that he gives us. That's God's grace. Grace cannot be earned or deserved by anyone. That's why it's undeserved favor. It comes as a gift from God through Jesus to us. You've got a series of verses in your notes. We can't read all of them this morning. But Romans 3.24 doesn't really say it any, I mean, it doesn't really say any more clearly anywhere than in Romans 3.24. We are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Oh, if we could work through that verse, just that verse, we'd have several weeks on just that verse, the amazing grace of God in Jesus, but it is a gift. It's undeserved. Romans 11, 5 and 6, there's a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, here's what Paul says, listen to what he says, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. It is the grace of God, his, un, his kindness toward us who deserved it least, that he gives it to the most, and he just overwhelms us with this grace that's a gift that we could never earn or deserve. But God's grace extends even further than just our salvation. Just in saving us, the forgiveness of our sins, it extends right up till today to deliver us from this present evil age. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you and I may abound in every good work. 
because of all of God's grace that's given to us lavishly, that's just drenching us, we are able always to abound and overflow to excess in every good work. God's grace saves us, and then God's grace makes us work, allows us to work, invites us to work, challenges us, and enables us to work. So it really was God's grace that they recognized in the gospel, the grace of God in Paul's ministry, because that can only come from God. God's grace is what brings us together and holds us together. Finally, verse 10, the same good. The same good is brought about by all of this. Again, the gospel is sure and certain. All of them agreed on it. But man's ministry was questionable. Remember, Paul said, I wanted to make sure I wasn't running or had not run in vain. They've come together. They've agreed on the gospel. They've agreed on the ministry of bringing the gospel. So they said, but also while you're there, would you remember the poor? Paul says, that's the very thing I'm eager to do. That word eager means that's the very thing I'm making every effort to do. I'm making every effort to reach out to those who are poor to bring the gospel to them. He'd already been doing that. Remember, I think that was the whole reason he was there in Jerusalem for this meeting, that there was a famine there and he was delivering aid for those who were suffering under famine. He wrote to the Corinthians about this. It it was so important in all of his ministry. To the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9, he said this, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. It's the gift of giving to others based on all that you've been given by God that we share with one another the the gospel of Christ and we share with the needs that people have. It results in others being blessed. It results in people giving thanks to God. It results in glory to God. That's our purpose in life. (laughs) That's why we're here. It was important to Jesus. It was important to God in the Old Testament. This is a recurring good that God has for us, that God has called all of his people to, to remember the poor, to care for people. Bring the good news, bring the gospel, and help people where they are. It united the apostles, it united them with Paul, and brothers and sisters, it unites us as well. It brings us together. So those those are the five shared commonalities, what's in common between Paul and the apostles because of God's work in them and in us. It's what united them together, the same gospel, the same goal from the same God who brings the same grace to bring about the same good. It's all the work of God. It overcomes any division or difference between us. In fact, rather than dividing us, the differences that we do have make us fit together like puzzle pieces so that he uses us together for his glory. Now, here's what it looks like. It's at the end of verse 9. Paul says, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Who was it that initiated the right hand of fellowship? The pillars, the influential ones, the famous ones, right? They gave to us the right hand, the clean hand, the the one that seals promise, the one that, that works, the working hand of strength. That right hand they gave to us in fellowship. That's the word koinonia. 
that word that we use for our small groups, that we, don't, that we have a desire to see not just as small groups, but as groups of koinonia, as fellowship. But notice in this fellowship, there was work to be done. There, there was a partnership in this same goal, this same gospel for, for the same God, for His glory. They were united in fellowship and partnership of service and ministry. There was a cooperation. There was a mutual support in bringing the gospel to other people. It was an agreement. It was a trust. Even as they were physically separate from one another, they were shoulder to shoulder in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a koinonia partnership, fellowship together to bring this glory of God to reality by people coming to know Jesus in the gospel. It's the certifying mark of fellowship. Believe this gospel from God because look at the result of fellowship that would never happen otherwise. It has to be God's work. Now, brothers and sisters, we, I wanted to take a, a minute here just to, to think about this because so many times, sometimes we think, you know, maybe God brings us all together so that I can have more friends. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people, I just don't have any friends in the church. I, I don't have any friends here. But there's a difference, brothers and sisters, between friendship and fellowship. And they're not the same. The people that are involved in fellowship can become friends. They can be the same. And friendship is good. There's nothing wrong with fellowship, brothers and sisters. I want to make sure. I want to state that right up front, clearly and plainly. There's nothing wrong. Friendship is good. But what's the difference between friendship and fellowship? You see in your notes that chart there on the left is friendship. Friendship is really one of those things that we want. It's, it's what we want so often. It's what we yearn for. It's what we desire. I want friends. It's, they're so helpful. It's so nice to have. But nowhere are we promised friendship with anyone other than Jesus. We're not promised that in the Scriptures. We're given by God's grace fellowship, which is on the other side of the chart, what we need. Fellowship is what we need. We might want friendship, but what God gives us and what we need is fellowship. Paul says in Philippians 3, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of everything, even friends. He didn't even have any friends left <laughs> in so many places and so many times. People had deserted Him. People had left. I suffer the loss of all things and count it as garbage, it's rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may koinonia, may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, that's what our need is. That's what we need is that koinonia, that sharing, that partnership, that coming together in fellowship, the sufferings of Jesus becoming like Him. Next in that chart, friendship is generally, a lot of times, most of the time, it's based on selected commonality. Selected commonality, you know, the things that I like. Well, this person and I, we just clicked, right? I mean, we just, we just get along. We like each other. It's based on what we identify with. Fellowship, on the other hand, is based on gospel commonality. It's based on the gospel. It's a much stronger basis for fellowship than it is for friendship. 
the personal preference that friendship is often based on can change, can't it? We've seen it happen in ourselves. We had friends. I had friends when I was single that I didn't have when I got married because my life changed and things changed that were important to me and I didn't have those friends anymore. When we had children, all of our friends that didn't have children suddenly didn't want to have anything to do with us, right? You know, those friendships changed. They, they went away or you get different friends. The gospel never changes. It never moves. It's a f- solid foundation of fellowship coming together for people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the koinonia, the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's that that partnership, that fellowship that we're called into by God, that we're brought into in Jesus. So friendship is good, it's helpful, it's important, but fellowship is even more important. It's, it's what we need. It's based on the gospel. Next, when we look at friendship, friendship is different from fellowship because in friendship, we choose our friends. We need to be wise in choosing our friends. You know, Paul says, bad company corrupts, ruins good morals. But we generally choose friends based on what we can see, what we know, what we like, what we want. In fellowship, God knows better what we need. God chooses our fellowship. God chooses the brothers and sisters that we're a part of in a, in a local church. In 1 Corinthians 12, we learn, as it is, God arranged the members in the body. God brought you here, brother. God brought you here, sister. And He brought you here who's sitting next to that brother or sister. And these are the people that God has chosen and brought together to bring fellowship to you and to me to one another. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. God did this. God chooses for us who the fellowship with the things that we need. Next, friendship often benefits me. Friendship often benefits me. You know, I've chosen the friends that I like, the friends that I see that I have things in common with, that, that I enjoy how they make me feel, what we can do together. Fellowship, though, benefits others. It benefits the people around us, others, and God, and it does even benefit me, us. In 2 Corinthians 9, we read that by their approval of this service, again, we read this a minute ago, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession in the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your koinonia. Partnership, contribution is how the word's translated there, for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. It benefits other people. It doesn't just bring happy thoughts and good feelings to me, but it benefits others. In Hebrews 13, we read, do not neglect to do good and to koinonia what you have. (laughs) Share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to whom? to God. This is what pleases God, this koinonia partnership fellowship coming together. John 17 is Jesus' prayer to unite us together with His people and Himself. Brothers and sisters, if that doesn't benefit us, I don't, there's nothing here that will. <laughs> being united together with Christ, being united with His people that He's saved. This is what is most beneficial, what, that is most needed, that is 
what glorifies God. Finally, the last one that we look at on the, on the chart here is that friendships can be lost and they can stay broken. Friendships can stay broken. You know, again, it can happen by your life changing, your life situation. It can happen by moving. It can happen for a lot of different reasons where friendships can be broken. They can stay broken. Fellowship must not stay broken. This is an important difference. Fellowship must not, cannot stay broken. We can break fellowship. You know, if I'm, if I'm in sin, I can't have true fellowship with brothers and sisters. I don't even have fellowship with God until I've confessed that sin. I still have that relationship with God. Nothing will ever change that. Nothing can remove me from God's hand. <laughs> but I can break the fellowship with Him. And that's what we read about in 1 John, that I can, I can break off fellowship with brothers and sisters as well by sinning by holding something, by unforgiveness, by a lot of different things. I mean, many different things can break fellowship. It can and it does happen, but it can't stay that way. That's why we have commands like Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, family of God, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So fellowship is what we need, it's what God gives, it's what God brings us to and calls us to, and and it's a gift to us by His grace, again, to bring Himself glory. Friendship, again, is not bad, but fellowship glorifies God like friendship can't. And again, as we fellowship with one another, our friends become those we're fellowshipping with, and so there doesn't have to be a distinction. There doesn't have to be such a a delineation between the two like they're mutually exclusive. They can be the same. They should be the same. Fellowship is the work of God and His people. I I want to just point point out this as an aside. Men and women who are married, marriage is intended to be both, a fellowship and a friendship. And we can, we can mess up on either one of those in our marriages, but that's, that's what God says in His Word that we're supposed to be doing is fellowshipping and being friends in marriage. But here as a body of Christ, we're to be fellowshipping, and this is what God gives and what we need because it glorifies Him to bring all of these people together who would not come together otherwise. And that's why we hope that our koinonia groups, the, the fellowship groups that we have, proclaim God's glory by bringing older people and younger people and and different colored people and different gender people of men and women and older men and younger men and older women and younger women and and coming together in those mutual ministries. And we talked about it this week that that a young family with some young children and and the the wife, the mother is just discouraged from being home alone all day long and not knowing, you know, does this matter? Why am I doing all of this? And an older couple saying, it matters. You're doing such a good job and encouraging that young mother. And the older couple that's there and saying, we never hear from our grandkids and we just don't know if they care or think about us. And the younger families there saying, no, just look at how busy things are and the kids just love to hear from you, so you reach out to them and kill them. And, and those ministries of, of being together with different people coming together and encouraging and edifying one another that just doesn't happen outside of the work of God. So we see that last lesson of harmony and cooperation. Harmony and cooperation, that, that's, that's the idea of fellowship. That's a certifying mark of the work of God in His gospel that He brings to us that doesn't happen apart from His work. This shows us this gospel comes from God. And it's all for the glory of our great God. Father, Lord, we praise You and we give You glory, God.
because you are so deserving of it. You are worthy of it. Father, in all that you are, you already deserve all praise and all glory. You already deserve all worship because you've created all things, because you've held it all together, because in that creation you are good, you provide, you sustain. But God, as if that wasn't enough, Father, you deserve all praise and worship and glory and honor and love because you've saved us. Lord, when we turned away from you, when we rebelled in sin against you, God, you came to us to save us. God, that gospel, that truth changes how we think, changes how we feel, changes how we live and speak and move. God, we, we are changed from within because of that gospel of Jesus Christ, because of your grace to us from him. Father, we give you all of the glory, all of the praise because of that. Father, I pray that this would be true and real in our hearts and minds all the time, that you would be continually praised and that people around us would say, what is the reason for the hope that you have? And God, that we can share with them this gospel. Lord, and that we can do good to those around us, Father, caring for the poor, caring for the weak, the widow, the orphan, Father. God, thank you for your grace to save us. Thank you for your grace to work in us. Lord, I pray that that would be on display for all who see and hear us. And we ask this because of Jesus, because of his grace toward us, our Savior and Lord. Amen.